I'm Tony Epstein, and this is the Magical Mystery Tour. Join us as we dive into the heart of things, exploring new ideas and new ways of seeing and being in this wondrous, crazy world we share together. beginning the end so where to start this is a journey into sound brought to you in living color on wtdr it's happening i can feel it how would you explain it it's beautiful god it's god i see god how do you like that why it's preposterous thank you very much information in the form of energy streams in streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy for having me on and really happy to be here. Let me formally introduce you and then we'll we'll dive in. Okay, great. Did you get a PDF or did you get a hard copy of the book or what have you looked at? I got both. Um, oh, cool. I couldn't read the PDF on my e-reader. So fortunately they sent me a hard copy and I read the whole thing and I loved it. It reminded me very much of Ram Dass's original be Here Now, which yeah. I read many, many years ago, back, you know, the early days of my spiritual journey. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Good. Yeah. So my guest today is Amy Butins. She's an artist, illustrator, and art educator. She's also a certified integrative thanatologist and death educator. Her work includes performing final rites of passage and she serves as a teacher in her Jewish burial society. She's been a dedicated student of Ram Dass for over 20 years and is a co-leader for the Love Serve Remember Foundation's International Woman's Satsang and leads her local Ram Dass Fellowship. And she's the co-author or co-creator 
of You Are the Universe, Ram Dass Maps the Universe, which weaves together Ram Dass's personal history from childhood through his lifelong spiritual journey, sharing what he's learned along the way through his writings and the many talks he's given throughout his life. So Amy, welcome to the Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for having us. I'm really happy to be here today. So again, I just love the book. And I also watched the movie Becoming Nobody earlier today. Mm, I love it. Yeah, that was wonderful. So to begin with, how did all of this begin for you? You know, your your own spiritual journey, your connection with Ram Dass, and your work in the field of death and dying. I first came to Ram Dass's teachings. Um, I was in high school and it was the mid 90s. And, you know, I, I had heard Ram Dass's name through, ironically, the Grateful Dead. I, I don't know. I, you know, Jerry Garcia would talk about him sometimes or, or Ram Dass might have something here or there that he'd say and it'd be funneled through the dead. And I remember reading Ram, Ram Dass had wrote, written a beautiful eulogy um, or a poem. I can't even remember the details of it now, but um, when Jerry died and I remember really kind of just being captivated by the the subjects that were included in it, like um, a, your true self or your spiritual path things like that were just kind of a a new way of thinking for me but I really liked that and I explored him further and um I found myself in Florida one day sitting in a bookstore and picked up be here now and read that cover to cover and then I just you know incorporated some of his teachings into my life. I continued listening to him. When he wrote Still Here, I was really drawn to that. I read that several times. It spoke to me in a number of ways. I was still young, but I was fascinated by this concept of surviving a near-death stroke and his views on life in a new way of living, new way of relating to his self, his body, and his world around him really interested me. And so that's kind of how I came to Ram Dass teachings. I would have had no idea at the time that he would have been so influential in our life. And I'm saying our, and I'd like to just bring in, um, I have a twin, identical twin sister, Julie Weinstein, we wrote and created this book together. So we grew up in a very progressive Jewish house. You know, we, we still struggled and wrestled with common things that a lot of families have, but we had a strong sense of social justice in the house. And I'm tying my social justice to my spirituality because it was very related and still is. And we watched our family live a very um, community-minded life. And they still actually care very much for their community and give back in a number of ways. So Judaism was the springboard from which we jumped. And from there, I explored, you know, many different paths. I became very interested in yoga and herbs and um, Buddhism and Hinduism and began a meditation practice and explored a number of things. I, I read and traveled and all this eventually led me to New Mexico. And I discovered the ashram, which is here in Taos, the Neem Karoli Baba uh, Hanuman Temple ashram here in Taos. 
It's a beautiful temple where they have a big giant murtia. It's a, a Hanuman sculpture that Ramdas commissioned back when he was in India and it flew all the way to America and they installed it in this beautiful mandir that you are welcome to come in, sit at, and they have many different festivals, but um, some dear friends, you know, had originally taken my husband and I down there and I just connected to that community so much. And I loved chanting Hanuman Chalisa. It's a, a prayer to Hanuman and it just became a huge part of our life. And we eventually found our way to Maui and, you know, got to meet Ramdas several times and sit at his feet and sing with him and um, attend the retreats. And that's kind of my spiritual journey in, in, in a nutshell, <laughs> tiny nutshell. Mm, those were the days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right kidless and free and but but yeah and parenting has been a part of my spiritual journey as well we, between my sister and I we have uh, four beautiful kids uh, 14 to 18 years old so you know and my creative practice has also been a huge part of my meditative and spiritual life and um, nature and you know many things um, contribute to living a spiritual life so I'm grateful for that. So how do they all come together along with uh, your work in the field of death and dying in your, right. in your spiritual life? Okay, so I really thank Ramdas for uh, guiding the way in the death and dying work. At the time I was that I had first started working in this field, I was about 20 years old, and in the Jewish tradition— Jews are buried in a very ritual and specific way. So a woman had died in our community and they were looking for another volunteer to prepare her for burial. It involves a ritual washing and dressing and praying. And the body is never left unabandoned. It's always attended, you know, until it's into the ground. So I was 20 years old and they needed another volunteer. It was actually my sister who called to say that they needed that. And she had been doing that for a little while already. And I just felt very moved and grateful to be a part of that. And I, and I stuck with it and um, it evolved into uh, leading our Jewish burial society here in Santa Fe. And it expanded outward to being with non-Jews and people of all faith or no faith and, and helping them say goodbye to their loved ones and and have a beautiful ceremony at the end. And then also the grieving process that goes with that afterwards. And so we began to teach and, um, you know, on top of the work we still continue to do with the organization. And I think Ramdas talks so beautifully about death and his experiences with the dead and and his beliefs on communicating with the dead afterwards. And it just became a real nice connection that I felt like I had a mentor in that way. He kind of ushered in a new trend. I, I, I think it sounds weird to say trend, but it does. The death and dying industry, if you will, uh, is full of different specific elements that make up 
a very vital resource for our community. And I appreciate all that he's done to destigmatize that and, and also to embrace something that we all will experience, whether it's ourselves or our loved ones. So he paved the way. I'm grateful. So I've had a number of conversations with people on the show about death and dying and working in that realm with people and and with oneself. And I'd love to hear your sense of how your experience of working with people who are dying and who have died um, informs your perspective of your relationship to, you know, the wholeness of our spiritual journey and experience? Well, I think Ramdas really helped to influence my perspective on the whole thing. At first, I went into it thinking, you know, the body dies and it's a shell and we don't know what happens, but it's just will always remain a mystery. And that's that. And then as I grew and really thought about it and like you just became interested in it and read and I was fascinated with near-death experiences and, and people sharing about that. But um, I, I've transformed my understanding of it. And I do appreciate the Jewish approach to it and belief that, you know, when the body dies, the soul hovers and it's still very present with us in the room until it's put into the ground. And what happens after that is a mystery. And, and even that is mysterious, but it does resonate with me. But I think where I'm at with it now is, you know, what happens afterwards? And can the communication still remain open with our loved ones? And for some people, I think that might be traumatic because it is healing to see someone go into the ground and say goodbye and, and have closure. And that's it. But I do think that there is an element where death can bring healing in the way that you can still communicate. And it's beyond what happened in this world, on this plane, in our egos. It's a more loving connection, soul to soul. And Ramdas talked a lot about how you know, we are more than our bodies. We are more than our egos. We are more than the way we operate. And so when we die, we are still in our body and we're struggling to even understand this new process. You know, what are we going through and and how do we relate to our loved ones if we're lucky enough to have loved ones and privileged to say goodbye to people with people around us. But what happens after the body dies and and the soul continues on. And one of the things that Ramdas mapped for us was using our imagination to talk with our loved ones. And if I could just read to you from the book really quickly. I'd love that. He says, we are on that cycle too. I know this may all sound ridiculous. And of course, I can't say for certain except that I intuitively feel that reincarnation is right. Accepting this helped me look at my incarnation and ask, what have I learned? I learned about suffering and I learned about love. These are the things I really learned in my heart and down in my bones. I believe that as you, as a soul, also have taken this incarnation to learn suffering about suffering and love. And so when we are 
thinking about suffering and love and how we can live the best, most meaningful life we can while we're here, I feel like there's a message from beyond that can help us incorporate that. I think Ramdas even said, you know, he he likes to talk to his loved ones. And I think that might sound far out there for a lot of readers, but he used his imagination to do that. And, you know, we develop concepts of our beliefs in our mind and our imaginations. And sometimes people feel like, let's get out of our minds. But I do feel like we can use our minds as a tool and, you know, we can enter into our heart to really understand the process that we're feeling during this death and dying experience, but also use our minds and our imaginations. And we, between those two, that combination can help us communicate with those who have passed on. And we can use that information to really help live a fulfilled life where we can understand what suffering and love is from this higher perspective. It's a soul conversation. Yeah, I, I love that. In fact, I do that as well. Beautiful. It's a it's a healing conversation. It it can change your relationship. It can help you live your most meaningful life. And it's a powerful tool. It is. And especially when when you have this sense that there's really no ultimate sense of space and time separating us mm-hmm. from anybody else, whether they're in this world or beyond this world. Right. And I love that analogy between birth and death and how, you know, it's such a nonverbal communication at that time. You know, you look into the newborn's eyes, you don't even have to say anything. You can't, they can't speak that verbal language. And it's the same with the dying and the dead, you know, being in the presence of a dead body, there is a nonverbal language. You don't know if their soul can communicate back obviously the body can't respond and it's a powerful situation to find yourself in i think yeah well i've experienced holding my daughter within like 20 minutes of her being born and looking into her eyes mm-hmm. and that experience was you know unspeakable you know right. in a way i've never had that experience with somebody dying so I, but I have read about that people at the point of dying, they often, not not always, but something shifts in them where they have a kind of natural letting go of all their concerns in this world and or are like resting in a, in a state of peace and can truly say goodbye in a way that that paradoxically, isn't even saying goodbye. It's it's almost like opening up to the sort of infinite possibility of, of what the relationship can evolve into from there. It's so true. It, it like you said, it's a it's you didn't even don't have words to describe it. It's like a mystical, ineffable experience. But I do think that that is what a lot of people kind of harden their hearts to. It's scary. You don't know what to say to the person who's dying. You don't know what to do. You don't have that experience. And so we harden our hearts. We avoid the situation sometimes. And by really entering those situations, just with curiosity and just that, I don't know mind 
just like the person dying doesn't know they we have no memory if we've done this a thousand times or more you know it's new to everybody and approaching that with empathy and understanding that you're entering this threshold moment this mystical magical unfamiliar territory really allows you to be present in the moment with that birth or that death and i think ramdas would say that is exactly how you approach life in our everyday moments with the same curiosity with that same presence that be here now mind so we can really reap the benefits of that moment and and just allow our hearts to connect and share this space with one another and contribute to the relief of suffering in a way that really opens our hearts and minds to the understanding that there's more to this world than just this mundane reality. Yeah. And it's interesting how we start off our lives learning to become somebody and going through that somebody training that Ram Dass speaks of. And I, I love that metaphorical language and, you know, coming to exist inside the term he uses, and I think you used as well, was these spacesuits. And then we have to go through this process after we've established that and had enough disillusioning experience, we have to go through the unraveling process of, of becoming nobody again. Right. With the emphasis on again, right? Right. And he does that with so much humor and honesty. And I really admire that. Like who can talk about, you know, all his wrestling in that spacesuit so eloquently and so hysterically. He did such a great job and and really outlining that and, and taking that concept that we are born into these spacesuits and we are conditioned to be a certain way. And we all have, you know, families and society and culture that shapes who we are. But then he finally gets to this point where he has this awakening. And, you know, in the book, the book is really tailored for younger readers, but it it's for all of us. But he describes what an awakening is. Like when you awaken out of this spacesuit that you've been so modeled and molded to fit inside of, what does that mean? And he says that, you know, awakening is the realization that the whole constellation of thoughts of who you think you are is a very limiting condition and that you are much, much more than that. That the model of who you thought you were was just that, a model. It was a model of reality and it was just a model. It wasn't the model, just a model. It's a perspective shift in which you see that reality is not absolute. It's relative. So, you know, the trajectory of our life, we begin in this spacesuit and we come through these moments and, and we hope that we have some experiences that will really maybe not just blow our mind, but just subtly wake us up and, and help us realize that we are much more than we think we are. And I think that is one of the messages that Ramdas really kind of drives home so beautifully is that, you know, we are a great, powerful love that can really encourage others to be their true self because 
it's important that we can embrace each other as as we are. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting how after our initial awakenings, we oscillate back and forth between that awakened uh, recognition of things and sinking back into our old ways of seeing things and, and relating to things and, you know, being trapped in the old spacesuit kind of thing. Our comfort zone. We self-sabotage ourselves sometimes just to put us back in that comfort zone, but the real awakening or the breakthrough can happen. It's hard to keep sight of that, but, you know, he says, you cannot fall off the path. Once you're on the spiritual path, you cannot fall off. And at times we feel like we have when you resort to what you're describing of, you know, that old familiar, or you think you're, you've regressed or something, but Ramdas tells us that we have not. And I do believe that. And he has this wonderful humorous approach to talking about his own stories of falling back into different types of ego traps in relation to um, his kind of obsession with becoming enlightened and and becoming free and laughing about it and talking about, you know, the different ways that he went through those things. And it's wonderful to hear somebody like that speak of those things in that way, because when we get caught up in those things, it, it seems so serious. It's true. He, he said something like, and it's great because he's such a well-known spiritual teacher too. He doesn't pretend to be all enlightened, but he says, you know, in my 50 years of working with becoming love and, you know, he didn't lose one neurosis, but he did, you know, get more comfortable with relating to his neurosis and seeing himself as love and loving awareness. But it took him a long time to do that, you know, almost half his life. And even towards the end, you know, he's still, he said, I got, I get upset. I get angry. I get all those things, but, but I'm human, but I, I just go back to the breath and back to the mantra and, and remind myself that I am loving awareness and, and not these neuroses. So. And you mentioned that you came to this with a kind of a sense of social justice. And I was curious how your own personal experience of reconciling that with the spiritual journey and also of course you know bringing in whatever you wish from ramdas's perspective as well great question and um i think when ramdas went to india he was looking for advice from his guru when he met um, neem karoli baba he was looking for advice on how to become enlightened and how to know God. And he asked Maharaj, you know, how, how can I become enlightened? And he said, feed people. And he thought that he had misunderstood the question and he reworded it. And he said, how can I know God and, and become enlightened? And he said, serve people. So it wasn't, you know, go meditate in a cave and wait for your, mantra that's whispered and channeled to you. And it wasn't anything like that. It was remember God, serve people, tell the truth and contribute to the relief of suffering without creating more suffering. My story and spiritual tie to service, social justice and spirituality is not traumatic like that. I, 
I had no one whispering anything or, or offering advice in that way, except for Ramdas. I feel like, you know, when one is doing what's good for all is good for all, you know, what's good for one is good for all. Like it's this community hive mind mentality and I'm approaching social justice and my work with contributing to the relief of suffering, not with attachment to the outcome, but just a sense of responsibility that it's not for us to complete the work, but it is up to us to continue the work. And I feel the spiritual connection in that because I offer up this work to a higher power. There's a concept that Ramdas talks about. It's a Hindu concept called Guru Kripa. And it's where you offer your everyday acts or acts of service or creation or, or really anything in honor of a spiritual teacher or the memory of a lost loved one, or you just, you're offering something up as an offering of thanks and gratitude. And I feel that in the work that I do, you know, it's often unconscious, but when I really tap in and really remember and set an intention, it is an offering to those who have come before me, the spiritual teachers who have paved the way and the generations to come. And, and that kind of infuses really everything, not just the social work, social justice work or the death and dying work or anything like that. It just infuses a spiritual seed into my life. And um, I kind of approach almost everything with that. And when you begin the day and you set that intention, you kind of can live a more spiritualized life or an intentional life. And I really strive to do that. It doesn't happen all the time, but I do think about that quote that, you know, how do you know God? How do you become enlightened? That Maharaji handed down to Ramdas. And it doesn't have to be so big and um, dramatized in that way. It can just be simple acts of service and feeding people and remembering that there's a higher power or a mystical component to our lives, whether you want to call it God or something else, and that we are one with that. And that's kind of how I approach my day-to-day, my spiritual life. I love the simplicity of the term, just serve people. You know, in the Buddhist tradition, they, they talk about offering our work for the benefit of all sentient beings and to alleviate suffering, which compared to just serve people sounds a bit complicated. It sounds complicated and people think, oh, that would take so much time or that would be such a burden on me. Or they might think, well, if I do start to serve people, they're going to want more of it and take advantage. And these are the obstacles that can come into our life as we get to know how to be of service or you know, learn to be in right relationship with service. But once you get started, you kind of can understand what the issues are that are going to come up for you, whether it's, you know, learning to create healthy boundaries or not doing enough or, or meeting your own personal goals. And the term is called seva. And it's a term that means, you know, spiritual service. 
And that was a huge part of Ram Dass's life. He started different organizations. Um, one was called the Seva Foundation, which restored sight to the blind all across the world. And he had other organizations that he devoted time and effort to all throughout his life. Even after his stroke, he still was of service. And he just lived this exemplary lifestyle on how to um, balance a life of service and teaching and personal, you know, personal relationships in a real healthy way. Um, He also was a bhakti yoga who practiced Kripa yoga. And he talks about that too. And he just took these teachings and really distilled them for the Western audience in a way that we could understand and kind of follow in his footsteps. Yeah, it was really beautiful how he did that in his own and our own native language. Um, getting back to you know how how we serve people and doing that while also telling the truth and also being honest with ourselves because that can be very complicated, you know, the notion of telling the truth outwardly, but also being totally honest with ourselves inwardly. Right. It's a very hard thing. Um, You know, when his guru told him, love everyone and tell the truth. And he said, I can't do that. You know, he said, there's no way I can do that. I'm so full of anger and I can't do that. And his guru said, give up anger and I will help you. And he was telling him not just to love everyone and to give up anger, but he was really telling him to take a different path in life and to identify with his soul and not his role because the soul loves everybody and it tells the truth. And, and really he came to understand telling the truth not in a way that divided people or speaking his truth to people that didn't want to hear it, but he was really searching for all aspects of what living in truth meant. You know, he came from a very conservative Jewish family. When he got off the plane in India, he was wearing a white robe with flowing hair. Like he he was really learning to live in truth and be himself and to speak his truth. And he did that in a way that wasn't proselytizing. He spoke his truth and people would come and and really hear what that meant. And I think that really brought him into a deeper understanding of ultimate truths, these universal truths as well. And he could really decipher for himself, what are these basic truths that all religions and spiritual lineages leave. And so when you get clear on your own personal truths, you're also getting clear on what universal truths are really speak to you. He says, truth is the basic fabric of the universe. The truth is everywhere, wherever you are, it's right where you are. But it's hard for us really sometimes, I think, because we live a life that's overscheduled and busy and we don't allow, you know, moments for tapping into the breath and becoming quiet or even a meditative space that we can access during our busy days to hear what our own truth is. So that was really hard. And and he says, love everyone is hard, but telling the truth is, is even harder. So it's, a, it's one in the same, you know, how do you love everyone and tell the truth when you, you sometimes don't like people? So 
just living in total honesty is a really hard thing. And then when you go against your own personal truths, that creates a real hardship in the relationship that you have because you get angry with yourself or disappointed or mad and you think you failed. But his message is just get on with it. You know, we make errors and and that's all we can do is just continue on and pick yourself back up and head in the direction of truth and work to stay aligned with that. So then letting go of anger and disliking other people and things like that is more complicated than just the notion of letting it go or giving it up or throwing it away or pushing it away. There's kind of an element of accepting it as it is so that we don't get stuck to it like like a tar baby kind of a thing. Right. Um, he says, learning to live everyone brought another challenge. I'm sure you can relate. You may ask, how do I love someone if I don't like them? Well, I figured out that if I can see the soul that happens to have incarnated into a person that I don't care for, then I remind myself to love their soul and not their role. He's talking about Maharaji. I think that's what his instructions to love everyone really meant. For example, it's liberating to resist another person politically, yet still see them as another soul. Like particular politicians are full of shoddy, manipulative deceit. I also know they are fellow souls, just like I am, that they can grow just like we can all grow. So I worked to keep my mind and heart soft and open and receptive to allow them to grow because it's for our own survival. When somebody is doing actions you don't like, the spiritual solution is to say, I don't agree with the action that you're about to do. And in fact, I'm going to try to peacefully stop you from doing the action, but you do it in a way that you do not reject the person. You reject the action, but not the person. That's a big one. And it's worth saying again, you reject the action, but not the person. So basically the message is, you know, we don't try and change others. We work on ourselves. We work on ourselves to identify with souls and not roles and live in our own integrity. It's a really hard, challenging thing to do. And, you know, there's practices that you can do to help you get to that stage. And I think a funny story that Ram Dass told was he had a beautiful puja table and a puja table is an altar where you have photos. You can light incense there read spiritual books or spiritual passages, meditate, light a candle. And on his poja table, he had pictures, you know, of his favorite spiritual teachers. Well, one way he worked to open his heart more was to incorporate photos of people he disagreed with. So he would come up to his puja table and, you know, hello, Dalai Lama, Hello, Anandamayama. Hello, Donald. You know, and he just would sit with these beings that he felt were creating division in the country, in the world, and and it's seeing them as a soul. And it's a it's a really hard practice. He he's not saying put yourself in a bad situation, and he does talk about extricating yourself from situations that you shouldn't be in, and knowing and and growing in consciousness to know when to do that. But, you know, that is all part of living in truth too. So 
it's a complicated teaching, but it sounds so simple. And it and it really is once you distill it, but it takes work, like everything in life. So how could we do that? I mean, what would be the approach to seeing people in that way, essence to essence, or God to God, true self to true self, versus just going through the motions of doing that? Well, one one way Ram Dass talks about is just, you know, spiritualizing your life and understanding that you do have avenues and outlets to pull yourself out of challenging situations. You can do meditation, you know, visualizing these adversary or opposition or enemies or something in your life and seeing them as a soul and not a role. But the other thing that Ram Dass really advocated for towards the end of his life after his stroke was a meditation that he would lead. And it sounds so simple, this I am loving awareness meditation. And it's sitting in meditation or walking into a grocery or, you know, wherever you are and repeating the phrase and mantra, I am loving awareness. And he would just do that over and over again. And eventually he would drop the words that I am. And then he would just say loving And then he would just say awareness. And when you can fully recognize yourself as loving awareness, you can begin to see others as loving awareness. It's just an energy. It's beyond the role. It's beyond the outward appearance. It's beyond the ego. It's beyond the way that we present ourselves to one another in the day-to-day world and start identifying with the soul. And the soul is another level of yourself. It's a different plane of consciousness. It doesn't die. He says it is the witness, witnessing thoughts, witnessing our incarnation and witnessing our suffering. And so when we identify with the soul, and you know, he's not saying you walk into a meeting and you, someone asks your name and you say, I am loving awareness. It's not that at all, but it's that you're seeing yourself as more than these egos who operate from our woundedness or our, you know, addictions or pain and suffering or our conditioning. And when we can really tap into that loving awareness energy that the universe is that we really are. That's how we can soften our hearts, open our hearts, open our minds. And just by seeing another person as soul is an act of service. I just want to tie that back into social justice. You know, when we can relate to each other beyond the ego plane, that is an act of service to your fellow being. And it's a way to live a more empathetic life and lead with compassion. And he talks about, well, there's a line of his that suffering is grace and somehow, you know, integrating both suffering and love and happiness, you know, within ourselves in a way that that doesn't create a conflict within ourselves. And and there's another line where he says, my happiness embraces my sadness, my love embraces my hate, my peace embraces my conflict and the war going on within me. Right. And being able to feel both and, you know, 
is what he's advocating for. He's not saying let's bypass these terrible situations that we all might have and see them as grace. That's not what he's saying. But he was able to get to a point in his life where he could see his suffering as grace because he did understand that, you know, the heart opens and closes like an accordion. And when it closes, it will open. And when it opens, it will probably close again because behind closings and openings, here we are. And so instead of dramatizing your closed heart or your open heart, you just allow it. You allow it to be part of the process of life and be patient with yourself because it is very clear to me that the shadow is the greatest teacher of how to come to the light. I don't ask for suffering, but when it comes along, it certainly turns out to be grace, even though I'm begrudging it all the time. So he's just recognizing that it is a challenge. It's something that we wrestle with on the micro level and the macro level, and sometimes very internally, and sometimes we wear it on our sleeve. And he's suggesting to you know, approach it with equanimity and understand that there's a balance in it. And when we can see it as grace, we can integrate it into the healing that we need to learn in this lifetime. When he had his stroke, you know, that was a huge thing for him because he he saw himself in the role of helper. And he had to turn around and say, how can you help me? And it was very humbling for him. And, you know, he wasn't sure he was going to be able to talk and walk again. And so for him to be able to see that situation as grace and share with us the process that, because it didn't happen overnight, he didn't have his stroke and just think, oh, instantly, I see this as grace. He really wrestled and he was upset and he was mad at Maharaji. He thought he had been abandoned. He had put so much faith into his guru and his you know, his powers to help him. He thought he lived a very protected and privileged life because of that. And, you know, it shook his faith, but it did take him some time, but eventually he did see it as grace. And I think he emulates that that process of, of healing so beautifully. And he shared, you know, so openly that it took him some time. He was He was mad. He didn't want to accept the help. He didn't want to see it as grace. And he eventually came around to it and not only just made peace with it, but really saw it as part of his his karma and his story. It's interesting how the universe gives us these circumstances and situations that that seem to be perfect for what we have to deal with in our own lives. And then it's up to us to decide or to choose how we're going to respond to to whatever arises in our life and and also to you know to recognize it and honor it as being a kind of grace that is occurring on our path on our spiritual path right it's a it's a hard thing to recognize because again like going back to that anger you know some of us have a lot of anger about you know, why does this happen to me or that victim mentality? And and some of us do have a lot to overcome, more challenges than the next. But, you know, he says that we know that change is going to happen. Like that is built into this, this existence. Like that is the most predictable 
thing that we can all universally experience is that change. And he's really felt like that we were in this training program to see that, you know, we are in our training program to find a place in ourselves and in the way we live our lives where we are not so dependent on the forms of existence that we freak when it changes, that we freak in the presence of increasing chaos. But it's going to be that moment where those people who have some tiny degree of equanimity will be that thing around which we coalesce a shift that is healing instead of ultimately destructive. And as a parent, I'm speaking personally now, I think it's important and vital that we model these teachings that Ramdas has laid out so that our children and our children's children are able to approach, you know, whatever they're about to inherit in a way that they aren't going to freak and aren't going to freak when they are faced with ultimate consequences of our actions. So not only are we doing this work for ourselves. But we're also doing it for our children and our and the generations to come. Yeah, there's that old notion that what we don't work on in ourselves, what we don't take responsibility for in ourselves, will be left to our children to do. Right. Right. But by modeling these teachings and and talking openly with our children about them and and just showing them our human struggles, you know, oh, I, f- I failed again on this or I've really noticed some improvement here or this this year I'm going to try and incorporate this practice of whatever it is, meditation or mantra. Would you like to do it with me or um, you know, listening to talks and podcasts with them or or just showing them just like Ramdas did, how we are on our spiritual path and really working at it and working on ourselves is a gift to these generations to come. I I think about this. What if this was taught in the schools? You know, what if there was a government sponsored campaign that went viral on kindness or, you know, can you imagine the shift that the world would see? in all aspects of life, you know, politically, environmentally, socially, everything. So I think it starts at home. Yeah. And also being done in a way that, you know, the way he did making fun of his own failings along the way. Yeah. That and, you know, encouraging each other to find our own ways. And the other thing that Ram Dass said is, you know, our Dharma, our path, our way, we will hear that when we you know, get quiet in our meditations and in through our intuition speaking to us, but we can expect that that will change too. So really encouraging our children and reminding ourselves that what worked for us one way at one certain point in our life will in fact, or might in fact change and just allowing that and being gentle with ourselves, knowing that we might just be evolving into something different and that you know, what it looked like at one point, it's now meant to look like something else because we got the message or it's time to just practice something else. So uh, I think that going back to that statement about truth and living our truth and speaking our truth and just knowing that sometimes our truth will change. And Ramdas talked a lot about that as well. And towards the end of his life and really throughout his life, he would he would honestly say, actually my views on that changed or I don't see it like that anymore. So that living in truth is really tied to our evolution as a human being, knowing that, you know, change is 
inevitable in all aspects of our life. And I think there's an illusion of, you know, the idea of finding ourselves as being a kind of an absolute thing. And I love the way you're you're talking about how things will most likely continually change throughout our journey through life and that our truth will change as well. So that truth is not something that is static and one way, even for one particular person, that it's continually changing and evolving or or just changing in, in whatever way that it most naturally does for us. True. And that's really hard in our society because I think we're trained to see things in absolute terms and also to take a particular stance and to not flip-flop on things, not to change your mind. And so attached to it too. And yeah, it's a challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Wars occur over things like that. Right. Right. I just saw it happen within my own family a couple of weeks ago. <laughs> right around Thanksgiving or something? <laughs> yeah, yeah, right after Thanksgiving. It was uh, something that hadn't happened in our family in decades. And I was just stunned and aghast. And I thought I could, you know, in that mm. typical Jewish way of, you know, with good intentions, meddling in the affairs of others, I thought I could, you know, stick my neck in the middle of it and and help resolve it. And it was, mm-hmm. uh, it turned out to be more than, than any of the parties were ready to, to actually work on and, and let go of. So. Ramdas has this great teaching. He says, if you think you're so enlightened, if you think you've become so involved, why don't you go try spending a week with your family? <laughs> yeah. And I think it's really true. And so I wish you all the best in that and uh, healing may happen because of that. Thank you. Yeah. I wish that for them as well. I'm, I'm, I've been working on making peace with the situation for myself. And, and I also know that when we can make peace with that situation for ourselves, it actually has a resonant effect on them as well. So at, least to, at least to some degree. And you know what, Tonio, that is exactly what we were saying at the beginning, kind of all throughout that, that that is what Ramdas is saying. When we can recognize that we're sharing this life with fellow souls who are operating from their ego and their role, but when we see them as souls, we allow that spaciousness and the openness and the potential and the possibility for them to you know, evolve, no expectations on that though, but for them to evolve into their truest and highest and best self. And, and when we all operate from that open space, we can create community that is more open-hearted, compassionate, empathetic with each other. And, and that is how we identify each other as some kind of greater awareness. We share this greater awareness and we can we can uh, heal relationships and divisions in that way. Yeah, that's like the greatest gift we can give each other. So true. And it's the hardest gift too, you know? Yeah. Yeah, first we have to do it with ourselves. We have to be able to see that in ourselves right. to be able to see it in anybody else. It's true. It's WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick, Central Vermont Community Radio. So at the end 
there's a section on methods. And I love when Ram Dass says that there are methods upon methods, but that the methods are an illusion. And we use the illusion to get out of the illusion and to gain inner freedom and to connect with higher consciousness. Could you talk a bit more about that? Yeah. And he also, same thing. I think change, this theme of change really flavored all his teachings because he knew that they would change and methods are just methods and we can use them as tools, but that they will maybe lose their potency for us at certain times, or maybe they need to change, or maybe a teacher needs to change or, you know, something doesn't resonate in anymore. And throughout his life, he really incorporated a lot of different teachings. He dabbled in different meditation techniques. He loved Vipassana meditation, but later in life, his meditation just became staring at the ocean or spacing off and listening to the birds. Um, Service was a method. And these methods, he's talking about their methods to get to God or to understand this higher power or this mystical component to life. So he wasn't just using methods to cope with the day-to-day, although I'm sure at certain times in his life he maybe was, but these methods were really to help him spiritualize his life and to understand that his connection and relationship to God or however you want to call it can be accessed or strengthened through these methods. Some of the methods were karma yoga. Like I said, he was a karma yogi. He he did devotional service. You know, he devoted his service, whether they were just having a one-on-one Skype call with somebody or or leading a retreat or a workshop or or an organization. That was his way to connect with God. He did chanting and kirtan. Singing the names of God was a huge thing for him. He was a bhakti yogi. He loved singing kirtan. He thought it strengthened his connection to God in a way that he could, you know, trance out like he was on psychedelics or something. He did mindfulness and meditation. He sang the Hanuman Chalisa, which is a 40-verse prayer to the monkey god Hanuman. He he had a number of mantras that he incorporated in the last of his life. Like I was saying, I am loving awareness just became his his practice. And that became the soundtrack in his head. And so these are the methods that he's talking about. And he's, he did say that these methods can help us gain inner freedom. And what he really meant by that is, you know, we get so caught up in our minds and the chatter in our mind. And like Krishna does says, the movie of me and these methods can help us get out of our minds and into our hearts so that we can recognize that we are more than just ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So when you wrote this book or when you created this book with your sister, Did you have a particular audience in mind? Yeah, it's kind of interesting to us because when we started this project, we we thought we would be writing a young children's book and include Ram Dass's teachings and a little bit about his story in life. And then we just, as we got into it, we thought, 
no, this is not a young children's book. You know, what if you were 13 years old? You're not quite ready for Be Here Now, but you are so hungry for this information, whether you are actively expressing that or whether you're secretly thinking it to yourself or whether you don't know you need this, but you, you know, need this. (laughs) And that is kind of who we wrote the book for. We wrote the book also for people who, were adults and never heard of Ram Dass, but maybe Be Here Now would have just been a little too far out for them. And this also is a book for the older generations of Satsang who have been a part of Ram Dass's life and want to pass on something to their children and grandchildren as well. And and also see Ram Dass's teachings with fresh eyes and kind of beginner's mind. So, so that's kind of the target audience that we wrote the book for. And when we wrote the book, and when we were in process of writing the book, it actually became a real deep dive and meditative retreat for us too. And that was kind of a side bonus. We took 50 years of lectures and we archived them. You know, that's a really good practice if anybody's looking for another method, I want to add, is mm-hmm. listen to a teaching, listen to a teacher talk and play it, you know, slow down, play it sped up, write it, write it several times, type it, handwrite it, draw what it looks like. It changes you. And even if you've been exposed to this, like we, some of these teachings, you know, we were first introduced to in the early 2000s. And so here we are today, you know, or even in the mid nineties, the first teachings, like it's such a different relationship to these teachings now. And I'll just give you a quick example too, if you don't mind. You know, my relationship to the word God has completely changed. And I credit Ramdas with that. Like that was such a hard word for me. And I know it can be even for our target audience, you know, these younger generation of kids, like that is a really hard word. And he spells it out so beautifully in this book and, you know, in many of his lectures and talks. So so just writing about that, you know, it's it's it can change you in a number of ways. And and this book project really, it really had an impact on Julie and I as we worked on it. And I hope it does for anybody who reads it, but also the younger generations. Mm-hmm. And I just want to mention that I started reading this while that blow up happened with, in my family. So this yeah. was really helpful for me. Thank you. That's so wonderful to hear. I'm glad that was a support for you. So this might be a funny kind of a request, but you mentioned that the original Be Here Now book might be a little too far out there for for some people. I'm curious if you could give me an example of something like that, because I really found this new book of yours to be so much like his book. But of course, I haven't read his book in many years, so I'm curious about that differentiation. Yeah. And we wanted to, we didn't want to rewrite Be Here Now, but we did want to kind of reference that and and make it feel like a real throwback to Be Here Now. And so for the listeners who aren't familiar, Be Here Now was a book that was put out, I think in 1971. And it was a series of lectures, just like this book, uh, You Are the Universe, Ramdas Maps, The Journey that we're talking about. And it was the first half of the recorded lectures of his life. You are the universe 
is the second half of the, the recorded lectures of his life. And so what I mean by a little bit far out, you know, he does talk a lot about God and there's reference to Jesus. There's a lot of Hindu terms. There are some really, um, I want to say advanced concepts in it for, you know, novel readers, like they've never heard certain terms or certain descriptions. And there isn't a lot of background information or context clues go back and read Antonio again and and just revisit it you know remember where you were in your life when you first read it and and see what you think now you know this book you are the universe is laid out in a similar way in the beginning of our book it does have ramdas's story it's in blue print just like be here now and this blue theme and it does highlight certain um, you know, the quintessential teachings that Ram Dass um, and the events that took place in his life up to meeting his guru. But our book expands on it and it goes all the way up to his death and his thoughts on what is a soul pod and what happens after death and what even Ram Dass's death was like and what his stroke was like. And then in our book, we have newer teachings in the Brown section and it's on slick paper and it's printed in a very modern style, whereas Be Here Now was printed on this really tactile brown paper with hand-drawn images, just like ours. But it just has a very different feel. And in the resource section, ours is um, it's a similar resources. Be Here Now is a few more, but it's just a different language. It's it's just a more modern language. And it, and it is Ram Dass's own words. So it's just a different style that he kind of took on and articulation that he took on later in life. So you'll have to see for yourself and compare it, but but that's kind of my synopsis. It's a bit more modern take with mm-hmm. less God language, maybe. I'm not sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, I thoroughly enjoyed reading it. It was a wonderful return to Ram Dass, who I have occasionally stumbled upon throughout the years and have always, always enjoyed his humor and his perspective and the way he approaches all of this. So I want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a delight to talk with you. And again, it was wonderful reading the book. Thank you so much. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. And I hope it's a meaningful contribution to the world. And please check it out if you'd like ramdas.org slash shop or on Amazon, or anywhere books are sold. So thank you all. Amy Butins. She's an artist, illustrator, and art educator. She's also a certified integrative thanatologist and death educator. She's been a dedicated student of Ram Dass for over 20 years and is a co-leader for the Love, Serve, Remember Foundation's International Women's Satsang and leads her local Ram Dass Fellowship. And she's the co-author or co-creator of You Are the Universe, Ram Dass Maps the Universe.
settle down into this moment. Just let be what is. Let the sensations that you experience in your body, notice them when they arise. Then if you hear a sound, notice that. But keep letting go each one as it arises, notice it, and then be aware of the next thing. There's this new horn to be heard. And the feeling in your legs or the feeling of the floor under your feet. There's various inner states of your body, maybe hot or cold, tense or relaxed, tired or energetic. Just let the awareness be drawn from to first the sound, or the, if that pulls on you, or then the sensation in the body, or a smell, or a taste, or a sight, whatever. You do it with your eyes open. It might be easier with your eyes closed, but you can do it either way you'd like. Just letting the phenomena of life arise, exist, and change. Thoughts arise, memories, judgments, plans. See them just like the horns, the traffic, sensations in your body. They come, they exist, and then they move on. No call to react, just note. Note sound, note feelings, sensations, thoughts. But just as if you were sitting on the bank of a river and leaves were floating down on top of the river, you don't follow the leaf with your eyes. You just keep centered and let the leaf come into your vision, come through and go on. What is noticing all of this, you could call the noticer or the witness. It's a little like a torch or a flashlight. It shines now on this, now on that. At one moment it's shining on a thought, another moment on a sensation, another moment on an emotion, another moment on a memory. The images just keep coming. All the phenomena just keep arising existing and moving on. But the torch or the flashlight never shines upon itself. 
Just let the phenomena come and go in their own natural progression, resting more and more deeply in just the awareness that notices all of these things. Thoughts of who you are, thoughts of anything at all that arise, just for this moment, see them as phenomena arising, existing, and moving on. The horns that sounded a few minutes ago, where are they? They're gone. The thoughts you had a few minutes ago, long gone. What you were attending to just a moment ago, now replaced by something else. What is common to all of them is the awareness that is noting them. Just rest in awareness. Awareness of all forms, feelings, thoughts, sensations. Each thing you experience is another leaf floating down the stream. Notice how certain thoughts and feelings and sensations attract your awareness and your awareness starts to follow the leaf down the stream. And then you hear me say, just let them go. Come back to the awareness. Let's take it one step further together. That awareness from which you are experiencing, feeling, thinking, sensing. And my awareness that is feeling, thinking, sensing. Let's consider it just awareness. Not your awareness or my awareness. Let's experience at this moment, this is just another thing floating by, the experience of shared awareness. In order to do this, allow the awareness to expand now so that the sounds and sensations and thoughts are all within the awareness in the same way as clouds are within a sky or waves are part of the ocean. Feel the traffic as if it is inside of you, not out there. Just let the awareness expand so that my voice is speaking from within awareness. See that the awareness doesn't come or go. It doesn't increase or decrease. It just is. And all the phenomena of the universe arise 
exist and then merge back into the awareness all happening within the ocean of awareness that awareness is very equanimous agitated things arise within it but like the sky it's just very spaciously present sad things arise happy things arise hopes fears likes dislikes tensions agitations all within the ocean of awareness keep expanding the awareness everything you can think about anywhere planets stars people in distant places at this moment don't keep the awareness localized within yourself just experience awareness as the ocean in which the phenomena arise exists and change in this vast awareness notice the person who you think you are as another phenomenon within the awareness notice her or notice him bring the images and thoughts that define who you seem to be up, but bring them up as phenomena in your mind and let the awareness remain this vast embracing equanimous ocean and see this person in their in her or his totality see this individual as part of a continuing unfolding process of phenomena arising existing and changing always keep coming back to the vast ocean of awareness awareness embraces everything it has no definition it is neither coming nor going it always is it is neither light nor dark it has within it good and evil it has within it hope and hopelessness 
It has within it the beginning, the middle, the end. Awareness itself is timeless. phenomena are within awareness not your awareness or my awareness but just awareness this awareness has an appreciation of all the phenomena within it It has the quality of compassion that comes from just an appreciation of just how it all is. The awareness isn't judging. It isn't trying to change anything. It's just awareness. Now, if your eyes have been closed, I'd like to invite you to very slowly open your eyes, but do so in a way that keeps your identity with your awareness rather than with the phenomena, whether you're seeing them, thinking them, feeling them, hearing them. And as you open your eyes, look around, but yet hold on to the spacious root awareness and see all of the phenomena as within the awareness. Notice how seductive the eyes are to start to make things seem like objects that are separate keep coming back to the spacious awareness that embraces form. Now just once again close your eyes. And root deeply in just the spacious presence of awareness. And for a moment, feel the quality and the depth of the peace of awareness, even though it includes agitation, fear, all of the emotions. just the vast ocean of awareness.
And that's it for this Magical Mystery Tour. Thank you so much for listening. If you missed any of the show or would like to hear it again, you can find this and all Magical Mystery Tour shows at soundcloud.com WGDR. And until next time, take good care of yourselves and each other. <laughs>